Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. This is Zach Geist, and I'm here with Robin McKenna, uh, the director and writer of the film Gift that was inspired by Lewis's, Lewis Hyde's book called The Gift with many, that's been produced with very uh, often many other subtitles uh, to that. Uh, and I wanted to bring her on the show because I heard her on Charles Eisenstein's New and Ancient Story, and uh, I practice to the best of my knowledge, uh, the spirit of the gift in as many ways as I can. And I think I'll touch on some of those ways that I do that in, a, in an untraditional way. Uh, by me, I mean like me and a group of people. It takes a group of people to really work to keep the gift alive. Uh, but uh, welcome, Robin. <clears throat> so I wanted to ask you, what would inspire you to spend all of this time to make a film about gift. I mean, gift seems like it's a word that's used a lot of times. You know, people talk about gifts and Christmas gifts. And uh, for a while I worked in a Target store giving away what I called free gifts for people to fill out credit card applications and get themselves in hawks of debt when I was 18 (laughs) years old. Uh, And it definitely wasn't a free gift, but of course we called it that. And the spirit of it was very much different. Uh, What inspired you to make a film about the gift? Well, I think um, I'm somebody who's interested in systems and how we kind of organize ourselves. And I think, you know, we lit, we grew up in a time where I think in Western culture, there's this kind of like, um, we're grown up, we, we, we grew up with this almost like a religion of finance and money and the economy as the kind of dominant values in our culture, right? And I mean, we, some people say that uh, capitalism is the modern day religion because it's what bridges it's what all the religions believe over and above what the religion believes itself. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I'd agree that it's what all the religions believe. That would be debatable, but... Hmm. And Noel, think- it's uh, Noel Yuval Harari's uh, theory, the anthropologist, is that capitalism is the religion, and through the exchange of money, they participate in an agreement that even that brings essentially brings them all together. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's what his belief is, but... Definitely, yeah. maybe not objective truth. Yeah, I think it's kind of like the theology of, you know, the Western system. And when we go to school, we learn these kind of systems. And it's almost like the highest value is that, you know, and that's what guides all our decisions. And it leads people to almost feel like there's no other options or no other ways, you know. So I've always been kind of like thinking about like, there must be other ways around things. And I think when I look back, it's like, you know, when I was um, in my teenage years, I did an exchange program in Peru, and I lived with a family in the Andes in Cusco. And my research project was about um, Aini, the the practice of reciprocity in Andean um, indigenous culture. And it was like, of of the kind of, you know, the people near Machu Picchu, like, what was still left today of those um, systems of reciprocity, which included like making offerings to the earth, but also things like when a couple in the community would get married, everyone would get together and build a house for them. And everyone would bring a pig for the wedding and make that an offering. And it was like another way that people 
you know, lived and shared. Um, I also got really into hitchhiking when I was younger as a way of kind of subverting the, the idea that you have to pay for something and everything has to be transactional, you know? And, and then, so I found this book and it was around this double idea of the gift, like gift economies and gift exchange and how we're connected, how gift puts us in, in relationship with each other. But also this idea of the inner gift, you know, when we say someone's gifted, like we have these talents or qualities that come from somewhere outside ourselves that we don't completely control, right? So they say like, it's like a gift has been bestowed on you and the gift has to kind of pass through you. You need to be a channel for it. So the beauty of this book, the gift that I found was that it kind of tied together these two ideas of like, there must be different systems of organizing ourselves and look, looking at these kind of ancient and new practices of gift cultures and gift economies among people. But also this, this idea that like the inner gift wants to move through us. You know, if we can create the space in ourself, the gift can come through us. And in both cases, there's this idea that like the gift moves in a circle, the gift needs to keep moving. So it was this like beautiful bringing together of these two ideas and things that had just really been in my heart and soul for a long time. You know, it's interesting because in school, which is most of where we get some reflection of who we are uh, or who we think we are, there's students are broken up into the gifted students. And if you're not in that group, then you pretty much know you're not gifted or you think you're not. (laughs) And uh, I remember that... uh, there were the kids that, you know, would get on a bus and go to some other school and, uh, to, you know, because they were the quote-unquote gifted ones or there was people in different classrooms uh, that were quote-unquote gifted. And then there's other people that, you know, just were kind of the weirdos, you, you know. And I kind of believe that, you know, weird is a, if you look at the etym- etymological background to weird, essentially it comes from a different way of being and more of like a, you know, participatory, magical nature. And that's not valued traditionally in our uh, economic system. And I remember going to school and I didn't ask myself, I grew up in the hood uh, outside of Oakland in a, in a place called the Jackson Triangle in Hayward. You know, it's been highly gentrified now, but uh, it wasn't when I lived there and I lived on a small house bordering projects on like all surrounded by it called the Barry Park. Uh, and I could say that my only goal was w- when I've tried to figure out what my vocation was, it wasn't a calling that happened from within. Uh, it was what the hell makes the most amount of money. I remember the first question I asked my mom is uh, what job makes the most amount of money? She goes, Oh, a doctor, you know, this is before the internet. I'm 39, you know? Uh, and then I go, Oh, oh what aren't there like multiple types of doctors? And then I guess she looked it up, which I, you know, props to her. And she found out that the highest paid doctor was an anesthesiologist. So I decided <laughs> at age nine or eight that I wanted to, I couldn't spell it, but I wanted to be an anesthesiologist. Not for any reason other than I just figured if I had enough money, then everything would be better. Uh, and, uh, I found out there was things that paid more than an anesthesiologist and I went after those things and I, in my situation, made millions and lost it multiple times over again. And I felt that I was selling my soul in a way. I don't know if you can speak to that at all. Wow. 
I'm curious about the like making of millions of losing it, but do you want to say anything else? Sure. Yeah. I mean, some of my listeners know this. I, I ran door to door sales companies. Uh, when you're growing up in the hood and you don't really speak well and your last grade of education is 10th grade and you have a tattoo of anarchy on your hand and your teeth are gray and, and broken and, uh, and you're sick all the time, you don't exactly have a lot of opportunities for career advancement. So uh, it wasn't that I had dropped out of school because I wasn't good in school. As a matter of fact, I had a, a 3.9 cumulative GPA and I took AP class. I took trig freshman year. Uh, I was in a program called Upward Bound and it, it appeared that, and it was mostly Upward Bounds for minorities, I was a ward of the state of California, which meant that I was essentially in the custody of the state of California, which like basically makes me a minority by definition because there's not many people in the custody of the state of California. So... Uh, when all of this collapsed, uh, for like, because of my home life situation, uh, I essentially worked at a grocery store, a couple different grocery stores and a canine rescue unit. Some, someone told me that that was happening and I really liked animals. Uh, but eventually I, I got a job selling cars. I hated that because when I would sell cars, the, the nicer the person was to me, the worse deal they got. The more they trusted me, the more they got screwed. It's like a reverse gift. Uh, and then I did credit card promotions, which we called f- free gifts, which just means we like had calculators and pens. You'd see them in targets in the early, like the late '90s and early 2000s. You know, could you get a free gift today? And you'd fill it out and you'd get paid per application. And then uh, after that, I. That job disappeared, uh, and then I got a job selling door-to-door. I sold uh, cable television, internet, and phone service door-to-door, rain or shine, snow or sleet, didn't matter. And uh, and I was able to earn a livelihood, and so I ended up doing that instead of college. And I figured, you know, I'm going to be successful. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, and I'm going to build assets and decrease my liabilities and earn cash flow, which essentially just means I'm kind of living this parasitic lifestyle on the backs of people that can't figure out or collect enough money or have good enough credit in order to be able to buy a house themselves. And then I capitalize on that by definition. And the more I do this, the more I have and the, the more free time I have. When in reality, all I wanted free time for was to figure out what the, what the hell my gifts were so that I could like do something I could enjoy. But I just, until just pretty recently, the last couple of years, I never had the time to figure out what it is that I enjoy. I, I like spent so much time doing things I didn't enjoy that there weren't even the glimpses really to figure out what are these gifts, you know? Yeah. Definitely, I mean, I took trig freshman year, but I didn't like math. I think I actually did well in trig because I was really good at forcing myself to do things I didn't like. So I wanted to get math out of the way. Like, I think I actually had a much harder time with trig than some other people. I hope that clarifies. And then I started door to door. And then I started door to door sales company. Then I had 500, 500 independent contractors and employees with eighteen offices throughout the country, knocking wow. on doors. So I wasn't afraid to knock on people's doors. Yeah. And I wasn't afraid to get in front of people and tell them that knocking on doors will get you out of the hood. So I yeah. worked with a lot of people that were struggling, and I helped them not be struggling as much in the same way. But their struggles still remained. Because although I might solve their financial issue, they had no idea what to do with the money, and neither did I, which caused me to lose it all. Because when you have a lot of money coming in and you know how to budget it, then everybody will figure out a way to get a piece of that and or tell you where to put it. And then oftentimes, it's, they're a salesperson that's benefiting from where you're putting that money. So you know, it was a, a dog-eat-dog circle there, an Ouroboros, so to speak, with myself being part of the, the, the thing, being the entity being consumed. And uh, I did this little game until I was about 32 or 33 and then collapsed. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny. I had kind of forgotten about that whole gifted program in school thing, but we had that at the schools I went to too. And I mean, that's not really what I'm thinking of when I say, you know, this idea of having a gift. Like, I, I think that all of us, you know, I have a friend here in Toronto who says all human beings have abilities um, that verge on the mythical, the miraculous, the magical. And I think there aren't like certain special people who are gifted, but we all have, you know, very special things in different ways. Um, and I think it's related to, you know, that idea of the theology of finance and the system we grow up in. I mean, I think in the kind of factory schooling system, it's about creating productive citizens in some ways, right? And it's not so much about teaching you to find that space in yourself and to tap into what your heart is telling you. I think that's a whole other quality that, you know, a lot of people have to kind of find in their own way. Um, but I, I spent some time in India when I was making this film. It's actually, I did some filming that didn't end up in the final project, but um, we filmed in a place called Swaraj University in Rajasthan, which mm. says it's the world's first gift-based university. Um, and it's all based around like, land that's been gifted to them by a local farmer that they help steward and um, system of mentorship and gifted spaces all over the country. And they, you know, they're all about de-schooling and unlearning. And they talk about curing Indians, young Indians from the diploma disease, because, you know, there's still the kind of vestiges of the colonial culture and this really strong belief in parents that if the kids don't get a degree, that their lives are going to be meaningless, you know? Yeah, I spent seven months in India and not doing fun stuff in the spiritual sector, but like trying to establish some way to earn a livelihood. And I thought, well, maybe like providing people in India really good American quote unquote jobs, uh, doing really good work will somehow do it. And I found out that that wasn't in fact the case. And I didn't know any, my first thing about being in India or how that culture operated because it's not my culture. Uh, but I spent time in New Delhi, Gurgaon, and uh, Mumbai, and then when I was choking on enough pollution that was in, in, in Gurgaon, I went to Goa, and I was like, I just got to breathe. I was sick, like, nonstop for weeks just from how polluted it is. And people don't realize that, you know, developing country, the GDP is rising, therefore it's so much better over there. I mean, it's, it's not. I mean, I, I don't know. I I'm, I'm, wasn't born there, so I don't know if it's getting better. But from the looks of things, I can't imagine that it's getting better by the level of pollution and 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 I also Who's, the suicide who says rate. They think it's getting better, huh? Who said they think it's getting? Oh, better? Oh, Steven Steven Pinker, Enlightenment Now, Bill Gates probably. Um, yeah, I would definitely you know, question that. I mean, part of what these guys are questioning, like one of the central things, is this idea of like growth at all costs. You know, mm -hmm. and it's like that. You know, endless appetite for growth and growing the economy means basically like bulldozing village cultures and village wisdom. And, you know, my friend Manish, who started this place, um, has a degree from Harvard and, you know, he worked for the World Bank. And he says, you know, now he realizes the most important teachings he got were from his quote unquote illiterate grandmother. So it's like reconnecting to that wisdom that's, you know, about something that's the opposite of that economic growth and development and about tapping into what's calling you, you know, and this idea of self-directed learning of really finding a way to follow your own path and find like mentors and people who can kind of support and help draw that out of you. Gosh, we live in a time that is both maddening with the technology and people being completely lost in uh, 
platforms that have a 15 that 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 adhere to a 15 second attention span or that like essentially engage with people at that level and then we also live in a time where we you and I could have an hour long conversation about a topic that is totally non mainstream and people could come on a podcast for example and learn you know deep secrets about what about that are calling to their soul you know you may listen to this and go i don't care about this gift thing or this might be your purpose you know and you could feel that and i think we lived in a time before if that didn't come into our village we wouldn't even see it but at the same time with a village you know it's likely that maybe that would transpire like because you'd be raised and marinated in it and you would say i can't wait to do whatever this is and uh with the quote-unquote developing world um whatever that means um people don't see what use their you know father's gifts and grandfather's gifts and grandmother's gifts and mother's gifts have and all of a sudden they start to have a negative association with their mother and then the mothers and fathers of these children also want to make sure that they're protecting their kids so it's not even they're even pushing them in that direction even if they want to work with their mother and father they say no go to the city especially in India and succeed and if they don't do well in school and it's often graded on a curve so not everybody can do well so by definition people are not going to do well because they're measuring them against each other and if you measure anything against something else if it's not the same thing it's going to yeah. land somewhere on there there's a high suicide rate with children walking in front of trains and doing all sorts of things that aren't doing well in school because they have so much shame yeah you know um, I mean, yeah, it's interesting when you were saying it's such a non-mainstream thing, this idea of like maybe gift culture, yes, but, you know, traveling around with this film and showing it to all different kinds of audiences, not just kind of counterculture or subculture or burning man people or whatever. Um, I think there's also just something so fundamentally human in that question of like how we give and how we receive and what the blocks are to doing those things, you know? And especially the receiving side, you know, that's something that's come up a lot where you see people in the film on both sides of that. And it's something that really like resonates with people is that feeling of like, no, it's okay. Like it's, I don't need help. Don't, don't give me something. It, it feels awkward, you know? And I think that's such a fundamental thing to the way we're brought up to kind of think we need to be independent and not need people, you know? So kind of like falling back into the trust of that interdependence is it's a very universal question and experience. I came upon your work and the idea of gift actually through Charles Eisenstein's work, uh, Sacred Economics. I was told about this book while after the, all of the companies had collapsed and I was living in a tent in Mount Shasta, <laughs> getting water, my water filled up from the Mount Shasta water. Because I said, well, I haven't tried this Into the Wild thing yet, you know, that whole movie <laughs> Into the Wild. I'm like, I'm going to try that. Maybe that's the answer. I don't know. I was trying everything, you know, uh, and some man walks up by me and goes, you look like a businessman. I look down. I'm like got half sleeve tattoos on both sides. Like I'm sleeping in a tent. I'm dirty. Uh, I look at him and I go, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, and I, you know, trying to figure out how they would say that. It's one of these weird moments of like synchronicity that makes no sense looking backwards, except makes all the sense in the world when you realize that there's a deeper intelligence at work that defies all of what we believe is possible. I've had so many of these experiences. But uh, all of a sudden, uh, he looks at me and he, goes, and he goes, you should read Sacred Economics by Charles Eisenstein. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like well, okay, I'll uh, check that out. Do you like that book? And he goes, I don't know. I've never read it. All right, man, have a good day. And he walks off. <laughs> Uh, and it, you know, and it sits with me. And, it, and the perfect thing is, uh, what was great about Charles's book 
is that it fit within my budget at that time, which was zero dollars, because uh, <laughs> he makes it available by the gift. So I wanted to read another book, and like I had my iPad there, and it was just available, and so I downloaded it on my broken iPad that I had at the time, and uh, was reading. Uh, a book. And the fact that somebody could be living in a tent, homeless, and have an iPad, it, it, the, the thought of that hasn't escaped me. You know, as a matter of fact, more people are accessing, uh, more people have access to mobile internet than have access to electricity, uh, which is a fascinating, fascinating concept. So we're living truly in a time where the gifts of people are able to travel to those that are ready to receive it, which then comes down to what you just said, you know, how do I receive and, and, and do I deserve to receive? And uh, we live in this strange debt culture where we feel like we owe a debt, but instead of a, we owe a debt to whom? Like we owe a debt to our mortgage. We owe a debt to our credit card. We owe a debt for our student loan that we had to get that we were indoctrinated in order to believe that we needed that in order to earn a livelihood. And there's a lot of truth to that. If you don't have a degree, you know, oftentimes it is very difficult to earn a livelihood because you're living in a matrix that requi- requires you to use the economic currency, the currency of whatever you're using. And, mm. uh, you know, there are certain things that we now need in order to sustain ourselves. And we may not have access to an eco village or a local permaculture food forest. So what does somebody do to familiarize or begin to experience this spirit of gifting, uh, when this may be an entirely new concept to them? There's no, they don't even know what a permaculture is. I mean, I think it's all about building relationships and community wherever you are, right? So it's about talking to your neighbors. It's about, I mean, the the family is kind of the original gift economy, you know, maybe not for everybody, but, you know, the first place where we experience that idea of sharing outside transactional interactions, right? Um, and you know, then it's I interesting. Guess- my, my, my family would sell me things. Really? Uh, so, yeah. So, like, if I needed something, I'd I'd buy it. Uh, I also paid to get my own room carpeted. Uh, my father actually asked me to borrow the money to pay the back child support because I was a ward of the state of California and he shouldn't have to pay it to my mother. He asked me to not even to borrow it, to gift it to him in exchange oh for God. me putting him in order exchange for him putting me on his life insurance policy. And I'm not saying this to like, like berate my father or my mother. I, they're, they're, they're suffering from, I mean, they're actually a great rep- representation of the culture that we live in. And, yeah. you know, I mean, to, to be in that relationship, and I know many people that have loaned money to their kids or whatever at interest, you know, and uh, a lot of people don't know the history of that. It just seems like the normal thing to do. It seems like the responsible thing to do. In my father's mind, it probably felt totally responsible. Like, he is old and he may die and uh, he owes child support and he needs to get his driver's license and I have money to pay for the child support to my mother. Maybe I pay the money to my mother for the child support and I'm on his life insurance plan and if he dies, I get the money. Like, There's this very unusual kind of strange relationship with the family that's really broken up and transactional and I've, and I've felt that in my life and I felt that somehow the the greatest good is to just collect as much of this money stuff as possible because it seems like everybody wants it. And if I have enough of it, people will want me or want to talk to me or want to hear what I have to say. Uh, so I kind of don't blame people because they're, they just don't know of the alternative. Yeah. Uh, and if they're in this situation, let's say they've lent money out to their kids at interest or they uh, are, you know, I, you know, I, I, what do they do? I, you said talk to your neighbors. Like, would you just knock on their door? Like, go next door and like, hey, I've lived <laughs> next to you for four years. I, 
I heard this podcast, Robin and Zach said, come talk to you. Would that work maybe? (laughs) Well, there's the old like borrow a cup of sugar, you know, I mean, lending, sharing is a good way to like, I don't know. My, my partner was fixing his car yesterday and he didn't have the right wrench. So he had to go ask the guy next door for, and that is how we start to create connections, you know, in Mm -hmm. Toronto, there's a really cool organization called the Toronto tool library. I don't know. Do you guys have something like that where you live? It's a no, thing that, not that I know of. Maybe I, I don't know how to fix anything, really. I mean, the idea is like instead of each of us having to own each of these appliances that we're going to use like one or two times a year, like a drill, and a lawnmower, and things like that, like you can borrow things from the tool library. They also have games and things like that. And it's, you know, this idea of like being more in the circular economy where it's not about each of us having everything we need so we don't need to be in relationship, you know? We don't all need three extra spare bedrooms or our own driving lawnmower while the neighbors <laughs> next door are using their driving lawnmower. I know. Everyone wants a driving lawnmower. <laughs> that seems to be, that's, that's the sign. That's the American, the, the, the North American sign that you have made it in the United States. Like, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but uh, if, you were, if you're out there driving your, 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 your driving lawnmower and your neighbor's driving their uh, driving, their driving lawnmower, yeah, uh, you have you have succeeded in achieving the American dream. <laughs> you know, I, I, part of me feels really bummed that we live in a world right now uh, where. Uh, so I work in the fi- in, in a very unusual, unique aspect of the financial system, where I essentially work with people that are getting screwed by the financial system, help get them unscrewed. Uh, I work with student loan debt, uh, helping people uh, pay as little of that as possible, navigate that whole process, do all the paperwork, all that stuff. In many cases, they end up not paying anything. And then they have some type of tax implication, but we even prepare for that. I mean, if they make so much money that I can't do that for them, then it's significantly less than what they do anyway. And if they make so much money that I can't do anything, they're making a million dollars a year, $500,000 a year, becomes difficult. And again, they're probably not my client by definition, but uh, also with taxes and credit, credit card debt and unsecured debt, like how to navigate this matrix so that I could even have enough space and enough freedom to be able to think about gifting. Because if it's hard to gift when you're, a single mom with three kids and your, your, your expenses each month are more than what you're making and you're having to borrow money to even pay the expenses. Yeah. And then you don't even know that you should be getting out of this situation because you feel implicitly like you're bad for even being there. And when you're, when you're in your own skin, you could come up with a whole bunch of reasons why you're there and why it's your fault. You know, I should have checked the mic, you know, I, I shouldn't have gone out that night or I shouldn't have you know, I should have taken that vitamin C before I went to bed. Now I'm sick. And then now I can't go to work for the next two days. Cause if I go to work, then I'm gonna get everybody sick. But now my paycheck's going to be affected. And if my paycheck's affected, now I've got to get that money from somewhere. I'm going to get a payday advance loan. It's all going to turn around somehow. And it, and I could tell you growing up, you know, in that situation, in that lifestyle, uh, you're always living to the next paycheck. You know, one time I had three cars, three cars. Can you believe that? And then people were like, wow, you had three cars. I was 18 years old. I had three cars. People were like, man, you must've been rich. I'm like, man, I didn't want three cars. I wanted one car that worked. I would just keep getting a new car when the other car broke because it was cheaper to buy a cheap-ass car than it was to fix the car I was in. And I find that this is the same thing with cell phones, with computers. I mean, hell, with relationships. When you're underneath this thing enough, you're just like, you know, I'm just going to get new relationships because I don't even have time to like go through therapy or like work through the problems. And there's people in a deep degree of poverty because every moment of their life is spent just to keep the lights on and keep food on the table. And I'm talking, this is happening in the United States of America, in the Silicon Valley. And uh, how do those people maybe get more involved 
in at least this idea of gift. Because when you're in that situation, what I find actually what's funny, maybe counterintuitive, is these are some of the most generous people that there are. Because they're just like, well, shit, I better give somebody something if they ask for it. Because I don't know if I'm going to need something. I don't want to be that person that like can't get it back. And uh, that's exactly. one benefit of being that poor. Well, that's what you're talking about is the idea of like the circle of the gift and reciprocity, right? I mean, even like sharing a meal with people is an act of gifting and helping take care of your friend's kid, you know, and because you know you're going to need help next time or helping a friend move, you know, it's like ways that we can help each other in that way instead of times that we would pay someone to do that thing. I mean, I think all of that is about, you know, just these small acts of kindness that build community and knowing that there's people you can count on, you know, and it might be one good friend. It might not be like, you know, all your neighbors. Um, but I think like the more we take the time to build those relationships and connections, and we know we have something to fall back on when the safety net isn't there. You know what I've even noticed that's even more wild than that, Robin? Is that the gift comes back in ways that aren't even from the person you gifted it to. Course, so like if I, if I gift it to this person, it's not like I need to force the reciprocation. It's kind of like in the Bible, it says, you know, like, don't seek your own vengeance, let the vengeance be upon God. It's like, don't seek the return of the gift. Don't force the return of the gift. Of or don't, definitely don't charge interest. Uh, and I think this is an important distinction for people listening to this. I mean, it's a little bit philosophical, but it's pretty simple if you think about it, right? We come into this world and we're gifted by God, right? And we have these gifts and we're gifted life. We didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't go like, you know, plow the fields to earn my life. Like one day I was not here. I don't remember that day very well. And then the next day I'm here and I'm existing and, and I'm, I'm in my being. And then based on me being here, I am able to like either accumulate things or I'm struggling. One of the two, I either have a lot or I don't have a lot. Now, if I have a lot and other people don't have a lot, who am I to be able to say, hey, I'm going to give you some, but only if you give me whatever I gave you back plus some. Is it, aren't, am I not a vessel of the creator? And the very fact that I'm given this is so that I could steward this gift to the other creations of the same creator of me? Because if I don't do that, what I'm doing is I'm separating myself off, not just from them, but from any type of divine being. Like, like I now cease to be a divine being. I, be, I become disconnected. Uh, do you experience the gift in this way? Of course, yeah. I mean, you're talking about like kind of living in service to your gifts, right? And there's a, there's a thing of trusting trusting that, I don't know, things will kind of work, you know, and it's, it is a bit of a leap of faith. But I mean, the book, The Gift, Lewis Hyde was a young poet when he wrote it, who was kind of struggling. And he was asking himself, like, why do I spend so much time working on these poems when my landlord doesn't care about these poems the day my mm. rent is due? You know, like, what is it that's, what is the value of this thing that doesn't work in the, the exterior system I live in, you know? And he started thinking about that idea of like, if we say, you know, the creative person has a gift and they're, you know, they're sharing their gift in their creative work. How, you know, there's kind of an awkwardness between the creative work and the commercial system, right? Of like the free market. Um, and then he started thinking about these gift economies, traditional, you know, indigenous cultures and how, you know, there's this, there's this circular quality to it. And he made the connection between those two sides of the gift. But I mean, you know, there's this idea that there's something that's kind of calling to you 
and you know you follow what's meaningful and for me it's like yeah I, I for a long time I kind of the thing that mattered most to me was like these poems that I had read and these films that I'd seen that had totally kind of like transformed me on a soul level and just like sparked something in me you know and kind of changed my life and I knew I, that's what I wanted to do but I also was in that thing of like I have to make a living I have to make money so I spent a lot of time working like you know I like directed tv series and things like that commercials I, probably they pay a lot I hear I, I mean <laughs> I haven't gotten to the commercial <laughs> directing level but like lifestyle tv and things like that you know I, followed like women giving birth and like how it changed them and things like that. It was kind of interesting, but it was still TV. It was a very formatted thing to work around commercials and stuff. And, and then at a certain point, it just like, it felt like there was something more meaningful I needed to do. And I just kind of like, I, I, you know, went on unemployment insurance for a couple of months from my last paying job and used that to go start doing research for this film. And then it took me five years to make the film and it was just like having to keep trusting that something was going to work. But a lot of the time I didn't even have money to pay rent, you know, and still keep doing it. And so I was like gifted and, you know, so much in that circle of living in the gift and sharing and people lending me their apartments when they weren't there. And it was pretty crazy, you know, but it was like, just there, there was something calling me to keep doing this. And, you know, a lot of what the film is about is like watching people on that journey. And it's not all about this beautiful romantic idea. It's also like the nuts and bolts of being in the process of the labor and questioning like whether you're crazy and whether you should give up what you're doing. And, you know, all those, it was kind of an exploration and a reflection on those questions. But ultimately it's, you know, I guess it's been kind of the most meaningful thing I've ever, that's ever come through me, you know, and that idea of trying to be a channel for what wants to come through me is, is what like feels real to me right now. I'm happy you followed that. Thank you. I want to talk briefly, I want to share a story with you about this circular notion, almost like a quantum level of gift reciprocation. Um, I was at a Michael Mead retreat in August, and I grew up in the Hayward, Oakland area. And uh, when I, I just came back, and it was a really intense retreat. I mean, in the retreat, there's you know therapists there, there's people that had been done thirty five, been in prison for thirty five years, people that have been like extremely traumatized beyond all imagination, and they gather for a week in Mendocino to read poetry, to write their own poetry, and to try to like put words and create some type of meaning around all of this stuff. And a lot of these people have gone through what Michael Mead and many other mythologists talk about as the underworld initiation, and myself included. And so I had left there, and I had been apart because it was a men's retreat, so uh, my fiancé wasn't there, and I was meeting, and she was in Oregon, and we were meeting in the Bay Area. And as crazy circumstances would have it, I'm driving this old Mercedes from the 70s through, you know, the, like the hood of Oakland and downtown places, and and there's, you know, cars jacked up, you know, because the tires have been removed. There's broken windows that people have broken into. There's people panhandling on every color. Everybody's African-American that's out there that I could see panhandling. And I'm like in, you know, the heart of a part of Oakland. And, uh, and I was looking for uh, a place to eat. And I like vegan food and I like Ethiopian food. So I found both of that and I went to an Ethiopian restaurant. And I placed the order, but they're making it fresh there. And all of a sudden, the person I'm with that, I, that had been at the retreat with me says, 
you know, I've got to go to the airport. Oh my gosh, I haven't realized how far it is. And so we leave the food there and, and, and go. And, you know, as I'm stopping, I'm gifting people like wholeheartedly, like, because I feel bad for people on the street. And people might say, well, you know, they're just going to go buy drugs with that or just buy alcohol with that. And I'm like, shit, you know what? If I was living in this situation, I'd want to buy drugs and alcohol too. You know what I mean? I don't have the ability to like get them a condo. So what does that mean? I just don't do anything. You know what I mean? So like I was pretty generous, you know, like here's five bucks, here's 10 bucks or whatever until I didn't have any more money on me. And, you know, it made, I felt good about it. And they were like really, and one person, the person that was the most happy was the person that came up to the window and I rolled it down and I was like, look, I, I would give you something right now, but my wallet is in the trunk. And it was completely true. And I was like, but my wallet is in the trunk. I just want you to know I see you, man. And I hope you have an awesome day. And he goes, wow, wow, thank you. And like somehow that gift, even though it wasn't money, was super powerful, probably the most powerful piece. So fast forward, I pick up Madeline from the airport. We go to the Ethiopian restaurant. We're going to take it back to eat at the house because the, the tables are just, there's nobody on the street except for kind of panhandlers, people just running into a store and out, right? And they have two little tin tables on the sidewalk in this place where like it's kind of dilapidated. And uh, we're like, the hell with it. I don't know why that we did it. We sat down to eat food there. And we sat down there, and I go in, because I'm not a good Ethiopian food eater. I went to get a fork and a, and a spoon, which you're supposed to eat it with your hands. <laughs> yeah, because I, I bought guacamole, because I like to add avocado to it. So, like, it was this whole, you know, it's, it's, it's Ethiopian fusion, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so here I am. I walk inside. But, see, I had to. I had to. It, like, it, the whole using a fork is, is, I haven't used it since this time. But uh, I walk back outside. And there's an elderly black gentleman standing there talking to Madeline. And I mean, we stick out like a sore thumb. I think we got like luggage with us. I mean, we just like do not look like we're supposed to be eating there right there. Nobody else is eating outside anywhere. It's not like a Rodeo Drive type of, or place where there's a bunch of restaurants or anything. And he's standing there and, and I see her holding what appears to be a ring box, right? And I'm like, what the heck's going on with this? And, uh, and, and so she looks at me and she goes, he, he just gave me this ring. And I'm like, and at the men's retreat, I'm thinking like, when am I going to buy a diamond ring? It seems so silly to buy a diamond ring. Like, you know, we're engaged. But like, the thing that's like keeping the wedding from happening is like the fact that I don't want to buy a ring because I think the whole thing is ridiculous, but it's part of this thing. So I put a lot of thought into this in this very ceremonial space. And so I, I, she hands it to me and I pull it out and there's, and it, the tag is still on it. It says the jewelry company it's from. And, and I'm not going to name it because I'm worried that like, I'm going to get tied to some weird thing that happened or something. And the ring is, you know, $1,600. It has, still has a tag on it. And I'm like, man, what do you want for this? And he goes, want? No, it's yours. I don't need it. And, like, here's a guy you could <laughs> tell that, like, he doesn't have money. Like, he's maybe staying at some, like, type of halfway house or he's got, like, some rent control thing. Maybe he's independently wealthy. I don't know. He definitely didn't dress or look or act like he was. And the next comment, I go, well, can I at least buy you lunch? Are you hungry? And he goes, yeah, I'm hungry. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm like, well, what do you want? And he, and he starts telling me his favorite restaurant. Oh, you know, I like this place and I love what they have there. And I'm like, all right, I'll take you there. Where is it? And he goes, it's two blocks this way. And I'm like, well, how about I just give you the money to do it? He's like, all right, cool. Really? And I'm like, yeah. And so I give him 40 bucks and he, you know, I find out his name's Tyrone and he just found it right there. Oh, far, sorry, I missed that part. Uh, she watched him walk by and he just looks down. He goes, what the heck? And he like picks it up and opens it and he oh goes, what the heck is this? And I mean, there's not a penny or a nickel on the ground. Just a dime. It's like it manifested out of thin air, like somebody from another dimension or something, you know, just put their hand through, you know, Dr. Strange or something. It's like, blam, they need a ring and they need proof that the gift works. It, for me, what it meant, this went against the whole story of everything. 
It went against the story that like people will steal if they can. People will maximize their self-interest, uh, you know, because if he were to do that, he would just go take that to a pawn shop or he'd try to sell it. Like, why give it to her? You know, he would for sure keep it. Somehow he was able still to follow that yearning of his heart because we actually did need that. And some part of him really felt it. He's like, I, he looked at it and goes, I felt like you guys could use this, you know? Well, and this is one of these really profound stories of me that, of mine that came true once I participated in the gift. And I'm not saying somebody should just go and just give everything away and like not take any money. I've seen so many people, they go so extreme. They go from, you know, I'm a stockbroker to now I'm only living in the gift. And if somebody doesn't give it to me, I'm like a Buddha bowl beggar in the street. Like we live in the United States and that you might starve, you know, and you might harbor a lot of resentment. And if you're living in the gift and harboring resentment, you're not really living in the gift. Your, your resentment is, is a tool that's trying to tell you to not gift so much. You're gifting too much. You're trying to like trick the system and, or trick the spirit of the gift. And, and it doesn't like to be, I believe that it's a real spirit. Tonight at Ecstatic Dance, which we're holding, we're actually going to evoke the spirit of, of, of the gift. And we invoke the spirit of Ecstatic Dance. And tonight's a gift-based dance. We do it called Soul Giving every year. So it's coincidental, really, or synchronistic that you and I have tried to come together so long for this podcast about the gift. And it's on our traditional gift-based dance that happens each year. We do one wow. once a month, but this is our gift-based dance. And even the dinner is a vegan Thanksgiving dinner that's offered in the gift. And, uh, and it seems to always work out when it's, you know, one, one gift dance a month. When I started doing it all the time, it, it, it seemed like it wasn't ready for that just yet, you know? And I still let people in if they don't have money or whatever, but it's not like advertised in that way. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to share that story with you because I, I, I feel that it's important that people understand that you might have gifted your kid something or gifted your friend something or gifted somebody that is struggling something and they might, they might really want to pay you back, but they can't. And if you make them feel guilt and shame and all that stuff, you know, it's not going to make them pay you back. And even if they do, it'll, it, it, you don't want that money. Trust me, you do not want them to go sell their blood <laughs> plasma and give it back to you. That, com- that money carries with it a spirit. It really does. There's a soul to money. I've truly felt that. And, yeah. uh, and, I, and I think it's important to know that. And a lot of times, if you lend money to somebody and they can't pay you back, even if you're not shaming them, they feel shamed, which I think is so important that at least you, I learned this from my good friend Darnell that I grew up with. He says, whenever I give, whenever I loan money, he didn't even say that. It's not true. He said, whenever I borrow money to somebody, I always know that I'm just giving it to them. And if they pay me back, I just take it as a gift. So that's an important distinction. And that's something when you grow up in the hood that you, they, they, like, you got to, if you don't know that, you're going to be in constant fighting with people because you might give it to this person and they can't pay you back. What are you going to do? Go collect like the mafiosos on, on television? And I think that's what we're taught, that if we don't go collect, we're being irresponsible, we're being, you know, we're getting taken advantage of and, and all of that's just intertwined in some way. Yeah. I know that wasn't a question, but... <laughs> So I think maybe we'll end the podcast with uh, telling us about your film and where people can see your film and where they could learn more about your work and Lewis's Hyde's work if you want to mention that and, uh, okay. and lead them there. Well, the book, uh, Lewis's book is just out in a new edition, which is called The Gift, How the Creative Spirit Transforms the World. Um, he, and he actually talks about my film in the introduction to the book. Um, the film is playing in theaters for a little while longer. I don't know when, when is this podcast going to be out? 
Depends. I could put in any order. I do a podcast every Monday and Thursday. So depending on what's the best for your, for you and us, we could communicate with that and have it come out either sooner or later. Okay. Well, like December 6th, we're opening in San Diego, California, and like Auburn, New York, and upstate New York, and Ottawa and Canada. Um, and it's going to be in a few more cities over the next few weeks. And then it'll, it will be online in the beginning of 2020. I don't know where yet, but our website is um, giftitforwardproject.com. Um, I feel like I haven't really given people that much sense of what the film is, but... You could tell us. If you would like, tell us a little, like uh, a little bit about what the film, where where it goes, and what it is. So I I was inspired by Lewis's book that came out like thirty five years ago, nineteen eighty two, when the internet still didn't exist and the world was a very different place. And he thought it was kind of overrun by commerce at the time, but you know I don't think he could have imagined the role of corporations and globalizations and. <laughs> the crazy people running the world now and where we could have gotten to. Um, So um, it's following character-driven stories in four places in the world. There is a story in the Pacific Northwest of a young indigenous guy who's getting ready for a potlatch, which is this kind of feast of giving everything away, where the more you give, the more status you have in the culture. And he's also an artist and carver, so he's kind of you know, talking about how there's certain gifts that have been given to him by, you know, the creator or the supernatural, and he tries to be in service to those gifts. Um, And we're watching how the whole community is kind of rallying together for this amazing kind of circular practice where everyone gets taken care of in a way. Um, Then there's a Burning Man story. So it's kind of like the ancient and the new gift cultures juxtaposed together. A young woman in San Francisco who's a social worker, who's spending all her time building this honeybee art car to give away honey and mead to people. And she's kind of like laboring over it on all her weekends and free time and asking herself, like, why am I spending so much time on this thing that's going to last such a short time? But she knows that, you know, about the kind of connections that she's made with people and how it's kind of transformed her life. So we follow her on that journey. And then there's an occupied factory in Rome that's um, being occupied by 200 migrants and precarious workers who are living there kind of illegally um, because of the housing crisis in Rome. And the place where they're living is being protected by a barricade of art, which is donated by all these amazing muralists and street artists and some kind of really famous artists. And the idea is that they're playing the, the value of the art market off the value of real estate and creating this kind of preciousness that's giving, um, it's like made the place very famous and given a different kind of value to it so that the police can't evict the people who live there. So that's kind of the idea of like, you know, the radical idea of like gift as resistance to the capitalist mainstream, you know, of like the solidarity and sharing that goes on between the people who live in this place. And it's through the eyes of two little girls who are Roma. Um, who live there in the space. And the last story is an artist called Li Mingwei, who's Taiwanese. And a lot of his work is around um, relationship between strangers and giving and, and kind of surprising connections between people who don't know each other. And we follow a beautiful project called Sonic Blossom, um, which happens, it's people are offered a gift of song in an art gallery and just kind of, watching people's experiences they receive that gift and the ones who are not comfortable receiving it and another project called the moving garden which is about giving a flower to a stranger 
so it's all the whole film is about kind of like this double meaning of like the inner and the outer gift looking at how these gift cultures function but also reflecting on this idea of like the gift that wants to come through us and the space that we need to create for it during the taiwanese man i forget his name ming ming wei when he was orchestrating the 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 gifts of song and and the one woman was singing to the just single person i can't remember if it was a man or a woman that she was singing to madeline my partner started to cry because of how powerful like she just she's she's very empathetic so she's able to just be in the person in the film which very much restricts the movies and films she's able to watch but uh <laughs> that was a really profound moment for her just this this person just spilling out everything that they have for this one person for no reason other than just to gift this this other human being that's on this path down the dark road with them and uh and there's such beauty and majesty in in this process so you didn't cry I didn't cry. I don't cry. Most people it's do so, cry. At it's that, so rare that, that I cry. That this is this is one of my one of my challenges. Not that I don't cry. I don't want to speak it into existence as a as a permanence. But it's very difficult for me to cry. Uh, there's things that tug at it, you know. And then I I, I think due to my upbringing, there's a lot of offs. Like uh, there's I've never put it this way. There's like tears that want to come. And there's like surge protectors or circuit breakers. And it's like, this is unsafe. It's not even conscious. It's like, they just turn off. So something's really got to, something's really got to get me, you know? But I kind of feel like that sadness most of the time, I think. Uh, Yeah, I'm kind of bathing in it from what I understand. And I think the work that I do is, is the crying in a way, is the grieving. Um, Yeah. As long as I do this, I feel okay. So I keep doing this stuff. And I think maybe that's the gift. If you keep doing what helps you feel okay, you're probably doing the right thing. And if you've got to like numb yourself and, you know, dangle carrots in front of yourself and beat yourself with sticks to keep you doing what you're doing, then what you're doing is probably not your soul's calling. Your soul's calling will pull you and you won't have to use uh, Hercules effort. I I always butcher the word Herculean. Herculean. I need to just like say that word like a hundred times correctly in a row. And then... I butcher it every time I say it. So, uh, Robin, thank yeah, you so much. Smoke a joint in the morning and have beers uh, every night. And to oh get yeah, to- yeah, yeah. The the caffeine to come up, the beers. That's if you're lucky. You got the caffeine to come up and the wine to come down. You could do that and still be a dis- like distinguished, you know, and like respected in that way. I mean, now it's coffee to come up, alcohol to come down, Adderall maybe in the middle of the day, some type of mood stabilizer, anti-anxiety medication if you screw up in the equation anywhere or have to do anything that's extra miserable, <laughs> and then Ambien to go to sleep. Um, and then if you discover opiates due to something, then maybe you could replace some of those with opiates. I, this, I'm saying all this stuff firsthand. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. you know. And then you find out if you snort the medicine, then it hit, it, it, like you use less of it to get a stronger effect, but then it lasts less long. It's, you become like an alchemical experiment of what you don't want in your life. Uh, but uh, let's, uh, let's tap more into what feeds our souls. It will be obvious when you're doing things that are going the right directions. The mm-hmm. challenge is, is really doing things that just are easy. I mean, we so, so often associate uh, difficulty and stress and struggle with success or like somehow that we're doing that thing that's good. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, maybe, maybe the definition of success is 
really just inhabited by the most simple things to do. And it's just the most simple things for very few people. And we're all trying to mimic what they're doing in order to be quote unquote successful. So we could have time to really share our gifts. Maybe we should just figure out ways in which we could bypass that and figure out ways to live on less so we could really discover our gifts and really surrender to the universe and surrender to God and surrender to the divine to the degree that we feel comfortable. And it's a constant dance. It's a constant dance. It's a constant feeling into the world. I, I, I equate it with like feeling through Braille. You know, it's like you're not just looking, glancing at it. You're like, okay, what, you know, what, where is this? Where am I, where am I going the right way? And yeah. uh, continuously asking yourself that question. Otherwise you wake up at 80 or 90 years old with a lot of regrets if you even make it that long and uh, you've lived somebody else's life. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that simplifying and reducing our productivity and, you know, questioning this idea of growth and working a shorter work week. I mean, that's definitely the future. And I think it's not easy for everyone, you know, who's no, living. It's not. But working together too, and it's hard. There's a lot of, uh, you know, working together is hard because the minute you start working with people, all their traumas come up, and then you're, it's a ping ball machine and, you know, a pinball machine. And uh, yeah, I could talk about this for a long time. Uh, thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful uh, gratitude day t- tomorrow. Um, and uh, uh, it's the day before Thanksgiving. So hopefully everybody feels grateful tomorrow uh, for what gifts they have discovered. And, uh, you know, it's beautiful. They won't hear it. So hopefully you're grateful by the next Thanksgiving <laughs> that you're here. So. <laughs> I'm Canadian, so mine was a while ago. But oh, okay. every, day is, every day is a good day. For every me. day is an opportunity for the ceremony of being gra- grateful. Hey, thank you, Robin. Thanks so much, Zach. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.